Good morning. I'm Melissa Hollinger, and I have the privilege of serving on the Elder Board. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's something interesting about our individual current reality, no matter what current is. We have a tendency as human beings, I think you could relate to this, to feel like when we're in the midst of something, whether it's a crisis or maybe joy, that this is the way it's always going to be. Especially when you're in the midst of a tragedy. feels like the pain will never go away. But it's also true as a more universal norm that frequently as human beings, depending on where we are in our location, we consider something about the place where we are, the organizational structure that we're a part of, that it too will never change. For instance, if you were historically part of a gigantic, powerful nation, in the moments of your life, depending on where you were in its history, you may think of yourself and your nation as invincible. But here's the reality. Nations come and go. They pass away. And so do circumstances and institutions except for one, the church of Jesus Christ. That was a statement that was made by Jesus when we read that this morning. Think about the great nations. There have been many. In the history of the Old and New Testament, the recorded history, you have nations like Egypt, which were powerful and dominant across the whole known world. Nations like Assyria that dominated the Fertile Crescent, Israel, and beyond. Nations later like Greece that were the dominant power in the world, or even Rome. Rome was huge. Rome was powerful. As a matter of fact, on occasion, it was referred to as the eternal city because nobody thought it would ever be destroyed. But monarchies and democracies come and go. And here we are in the most powerful democracy in the history of the world. And it too will pass away. Like a vapor. One day it's going to be gone. Hard to conceive of, but it will. The context of this passage concerning the church 
is very interesting. Jesus and his disciples had journeyed from the southern part of Israel to the northern part of Israel. And in the southern part of Israel, it was dominantly Jewish in terms of its perspective. After all, that's where the center of Judaism was in Jerusalem. But to the northern region in Israel, they often called Galilee of the Gentiles, there was far more religious diversity and far more obedience to Rome. Such that Caesarea, that region that you heard about in the reading today, is actually named after Caesar. And in addition to that, there were huge, mysterious religions, pagan religions, concerning Pan, a religion that suggested that Pan was the son of God. So while in the southern region of Israel, and then moving to the northern region of Israel, Jesus uses this journey to pose a really important question. Now remember, they're in the Galilee of the Gentiles, Caesarea, named after Caesar. And Jesus says to them, we've been talking about the kingdom of God, which they had. We've been talking about the eternal nature of the kingdom of God, which they had. Now I have a question for you. Who do people say that I am? And in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, we get this story. The disciples say, oh, some people say you're John the Baptist. Other people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're Jeremiah, all, of course, risen from the dead. And some people just say you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus cuts to the chase, and he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter makes a declaration, you are the Christ, or you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, by the way, there were a lot of words used to describe Jesus' reality up until that point. Words he used, like son of man. But this is the first time in the New Testament, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, that son of God is referred to directly. Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Perhaps I make too much of it, but I think it's interesting that he said that in Caesarea. With the imposing reality of the Roman Empire and an emperor who claimed his own divinity, he made the declaration that would be known as the declaration of the church, you're the Christ, the only Son of God. Now, I want to unpack with you for a moment Jesus' response to Peter's answer. The first part of Jesus' response to Peter's answer was directly to him. He said to him, Peter, you're right. But you don't really get much credit for it. Because God the Father revealed it to you. Right? I applaud you for giving me the right answer, but it was revealed to you from heaven. You didn't come to the conclusion on your own. Then he said, Peter, you're a rock. And on that rock, I'm going to build my church. 
If you were from the Catholic tradition, you would not be unfamiliar with this passage and its interpretation, being that Peter was the first pope, and this was Jesus' designation of the first leader of the church, and there was an unbroken succession from Peter all the way up to the pope today. Of course, Protestants have difficulty with that doctrine for good reason. I won't go into them, but there's good reason to have difficulty with that doctrine. On the other hand, as usual, when we're defending a doctrine against an opposing doctrine, we sometimes go to an extreme. So the extreme that the Protestant church has frequently gone to is to say something like this. This had nothing to do with Peter. Nothing at all. The only thing this had to do with was the confession that Peter made. You're the Christ, the son of the living God, and on that, I'll build my church. I I would suggest that that's correct to a point. That was the foundation on that declaration, that confession. Christ would build his church. But there's something else that we can't miss. He said it to Peter. He told Peter, you're the rock. What in effect is he saying you're the first pope? Is he saying you're the leader of the church forever? Is he saying that there's an unbroken succession between you and the leaders of the church forever? I think not. But he is identifying Peter as the first vocal leader of the church. In effect, quietly, silently almost, he's saying, Peter, you're the rock. You're the leader. And based on the confession that you just gave, I will build my church. Get ready for it, Peter. I'm going to build this church. And you're the rock. Stand on the foundation, which is the confession. Let me put it differently. This is my summary. Lots of liberty with the text. I wrote it out this way. Peter, that's a great answer. You've spoken on behalf of all the others, as you often do. Confession concerning me is the foundation of the church. Get to work, Peter. I think we have to acknowledge the role of Peter. But we have to not allow the confession to be eclipsed by the personality of Peter. So that's the first part of Jesus' response. It was directed to Peter. The second part of the response wasn't so directed to Peter as it was directed to the future. It was a declaration concerning how things were going to be. And that part of the statement was, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not prevail against it. Interestingly enough, this is the first time that the word church was ever used in the New Testament, Ecclesia. Not only that, it's the only time the word church is used in any of the four Gospels. So this is a breakthrough, right? What must have been implied when he said, on this rock I will build my church? What might have come to the mind of the disciples when they heard that statement? Well, it's likely what would have come to mind was the Jewish background of the assembly or the congregation or the community of those who followed Yahweh in the Old Testament, namely Israel. 
Because Israel is often designated as the community that follows Yahweh, as the assembly of the righteous. So when they hear this, they're probably thinking to themselves, ah, we're an assembly. But what's being spoken into that particular situation is this. Jesus is saying, you are a new community, a new assembly of Christ followers. And when you hold fast to that declaration as Christ followers, I will use that declaration more than anything else to build my church. Hang on to it. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And if you hang on to it, if you are my church, there's a promise. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church that you're a part of. The gates of a city were always symbolic of strength and authority. Many of the cities had a council at the gate, sort of like the Supreme Court at the gate. It was also known as the center of power. It was symbolic of power. If we use that symbolism and transfer it to hell, Jesus saying the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is in in effect saying the gates of the supernatural city of Satan, the very incarnation of evil, everything opposite of God but still supernatural, it will not be able to prevail on the church even with all its strength. It can't do it. You know what the entrance to the gate of hell is? Death. Eternal death. You know what is also through of the image of that city, let's call it, hell? Once you pass through it, you can't pass back. It's final. It's the gates of hell. What does the image suggest? It may actually, this gates of hell not prevailing against the church, it may, and probably primarily, at least initially, means that death and hell will not conquer Jesus. And death and hell did not conquer Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus conquered death and hell. It may also suggest that death and hell will never destroy the church because it can't, because the church is eternal. That is the eternal body of Christ. The eternal body of Christ cannot be destroyed. So now we come to the main point, at least my main point in the sermon. It's the nature of this eternal church. Here's something that, speaking of circumstances, we need to remind ourselves of. Peter, the rock, later in the same gospel, 
becomes the stumbling stone for Jesus. The rock becomes the stone that Jesus could trip over. How does it happen? Peter, the rock, stands in front of Jesus figuratively and puts his hands up and says, Oh no, Jesus, I really don't care what you just said. Your prophetic revelation to us concerning the cross, you can't go there. I won't let you. And Jesus says to him, Don't be a stumbling block to me. Get behind me, Satan. The first leader, rock of the church, can become the stumbling stone for the church. That reality has to be apparent to us all the time. But the church did not become destroyed. Of course, Peter was restored. But some later leaders were not. And the church marched on. The reality is that charismatic leaders have embarrassed the church from its beginning. And the church marches on. The reality is that persecution, which was yet in the future, would all but destroy and crush the church, but it did not. It lived on eternally. The reality is that heresies and charlatan church leaders have so sullied the reputation of this beautiful body of Christ that you would think it was gone, but it's not. Plagues that threaten to wipe out the world and the church do not prevail. And governments, governments, mighty ones like Egypt and Assyria and Greece and Rome and the United States threaten to eclipse the church in terms of importance, but they cannot. The church will march on. Why is it eternal? Because it was established by Christ. And what Christ has established, his body, is eternal. In this series on the church, it would be appropriate, I won't do it, but it would be appropriate to sing the exact same hymn every week following the sermon. You know what that hymn would be? The church's one foundation. Let me just read you the verses, some of them, of that hymn. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She, the church, is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. She is from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, 
Yet saints, their watch are keeping, their cry goes on, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth has union with God the three in one in mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. With all her sons and daughters who by the master's hand led through the deathly waters repose in Eden land. Why is the church eternal? Because it's established on Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Why is the church eternal? Because the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ cannot die. Why is the church eternal? Well, because it exists beyond the realm of time and space and it is promised to continue by the power of the Holy Spirit who is eternal. The revelation comes from an eternal source. The confession is eternal because it's true and the church is eternal because the Spirit will never leave it. My friends, here, here is the most incredible opportunity that any human being was ever offered to be a part the eternal assembly community of Christ followers. The community that will never pass away. In time and space, When the world ebbs and flows, when powers and authorities recede, we can participate in an eternal reality parallel to this one, but in it. Right here in the midst of our temporary world, we can participate. Some people get a little queasy with this kind of description. We could participate in the heavenly church the saints that have gone before us. You know that passage in Hebrews that talks about the great cloud of witnesses? Sometimes we relegate it to people around us. You don't have to agree, but I think it's more. I think it's the people that have gone before us. I think of dozens of saints that I buried right here. And I think they're cheering us on. We are the eternal reality of the church, 
the Christ followers that will never come to an end. This is a lifetime opportunity. As a matter of fact, it's a life-giving opportunity to be a part of the eternal body of Christ. So don't miss the opportunity. Invest in it. It's your life. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you um, for your church. We thank you that it's eternal. And we thank you that it's flawed. Because if it wasn't flawed, we would feel too intimidated to be a part of it. If you didn't take flawed humanity and use us to advance the kingdom of God, well, there'd be nothing else because all you have is flawed humanity. We thank you, Lord, that we can be Peter, the one who declared that you are the rock, and then we can be that same Peter, wittingly or unwittingly, that becomes a stumbling stone. So, Lord, help us to keep our center. Help us to focus on that foundational principle that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And help us to stay in community so that our ideas don't go off the rails. So that the very presence and power of the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. We know that can happen, Lord. If we surrender, if we surrender to your ways. So give us the grace to do it. In the name of Christ our Lord, you pray. Amen.